This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others, and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey friends, and welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson. I'm a Christian freelance writer, mom of two littles, and I'm passionate about helping you live out your best and deepest faith in everyday life. On this podcast, you'll hear from inspiring women, moms, and ministry leaders, authors, and more. Those on mission for God with a message to inspire you in your Christian walk, wherever that may be. Each month, I send out interviews, tips, book reviews, and exclusive giveaways to my email list. If you'd like to receive these things, just head to my website, ericaanderson.com, and sign up. My new book, Reason to Return, Why Women Need the Church and the Church Needs Women, comes out this January, and I want you to be the first to know all the details. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson, and today I'm speaking with Katie Faust. She's the author of this book, Them Before Us. Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. It's a joy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I had heard of you, I don't know, maybe last year, and I knew immediately I was like, all your stuff piqued my interest. Um, and then I sort of started getting interested in writing about a lot of what you cover here mm-hmm. in your book, and then we were able to connect. So I'm really excited to have you on. Tell us just a little bit about who you are and what your organization is and what you guys do. Yeah, I live in Seattle. I'm married to a pastor. I've got four kids. Um, The youngest is adopted from China. I did not plan on doing anything. I didn't plan to ever do any of the things that I'm doing right now. Um, Ten years ago, I wasn't culture warrioring. I wasn't a writer. Um, I did not go all over the country and all over the world talking with, you know, policy leaders and, and lawmakers and, you know, cultural influencers about any of this. Um, but I, you know, when the marriage debate started raging, um, especially here in Washington state back in 2012, you know, what I heard the world saying is kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads. And what that means is kids don't care if they've lost their mom or dad, because that's always what a, a two mother, or two household father means. Um, to, to father household means. And that just incensed me because I have been working with kids for a long time. And one of the deepest wounds that children have is losing their mother or father. And so to me, I just took it very personally. And I was very angry that they would weaponize one of the greatest wounds that children can experience to push a political um, narrative. And then once I started um, getting into the marriage debate and really writing about why marriage is a matter of justice for children, because kids need moms and dads, um, and because kids have a right to their mom and dad. I realized that every single issue related to marriage and family, whether it's divorce or adoption or reproductive technologies or transgender parenting or polygamy or cohabitation or third party reproduction or surrogacy or whatever it is, like every one of these conversations obsessively focuses on adult desires and then the kids just have to stick it Mm -hmm. and deal with it. So we started them before us um, in 2018, in essence, advocating for children's right to their mother and father and insisting that all policies and all conversations and all personal decisions bend to that fundamental child right. And um, that's a, it's an unpopular message, 
because it makes demands of every adult, single, married, gay, straight, fertile, and infertile. So um, we find allies everywhere and we find um, people who are not friendly to our message in, in all different corners because it's deeply personal um, and it runs up against kind of the great sacred cows that um, people on the left and the right, you know, are often trying to protect. Yeah. And I, I want to say that you actually spoke about this particular thing I'm going to say in the book. So many times you get pushback saying, well, that's your religion or that's your faith. And, it, and it's yeah. like, it's not really about that at all. It's right. really, when you look at the statistics, it's just about reality and the reality of what having parents, biological parents is for a kid, right? Yeah. I'm, you know, I am, I'm a Bible nut. Like I carry my Bible around everywhere. I read it with every woman that I'm with. Um, and people will be like, this is just about your religion, you know, which is what all of us have heard. And I'm like, oh yeah, which scripture, which, which scripture in my book do you object to? Just, just, you know, find the one that you don't like. Just like, yeah. oh, right here, let me know. Because there's none. Like yeah. I'm not making a religious argument here. Like somebody just said on our Facebook page, we're debating the studies around same-sex parenting. And we posted this link where we kind of evaluate all the different studies. And they're like, I don't want your religious pseudoscience. And I'm like, literally, we just involved studies. But it's like they are so, um, they're, they're so little, they have not had to grapple with the actual arguments. These, these reflexive talking points of this is just about your religion has been so effective well, like it's just been so widely used that people believe that you say that and it makes it reality. Like I'm not making a religious argument. I'm making a human argument. Yeah. I am making an argument based on who children are, what they need and what we know about them based on the best social science available. And then in addition, what we do in the book is we include about 120 stories of kids who were raised in modern families. So if you don't want the science and if you don't want natural law, and if you reject what the five major religions of the world have to say about it, you can just listen to the kids themselves and they will tell you that they need their own mom and dad. Yeah, I had this, uh, a friend of mine was adopted at birth and um, I actually, this is a story that I included in an upcoming piece that hasn't yet been published in World. But um, this is a this is something I had never thought about before that you talk about in your book as well. And that is that even if a child is adopted as a newborn into an incredible family, which um, as you and she both write, I believe uh, newborns are generally adopted into like wealthier families, like really good pla you know, places to grow up because it's so yeah. expensive to adopt. Um, there is still a trauma that takes place at birth because you're being removed from the only person you've ever known. It's your mother. It's your biological mother. I mean, I just put something up the other day that was like, um, our children, the, our children's cells like remain in our bodies for like years yeah. up to decades and vice versa. And yeah. so like to act as if that doesn't matter is, is crazy. Um, but like she's had to grapple with that wound of, of adoption. And even though she loves her family so yeah. much and it's been amazing, like it's still there. And now yeah. with adoption, as you talk about, it's like, well, that's what we're trying to mend something here. Like that's right. just, that's happened fine. But with, you know, donor conception and surrogacy and all of those things here, you're creating a wound on purpose yep. and it's not even being acknowledged or talked about. Right. Um, so one of the reasons why we're here with sperm and egg donation is because we have failed to properly understand what adoption is mm -hmm. and who it's for and the harms that come with it. And part of that falls on the shoulder of the people on the right and the pro-life community that have wanted to suppress 
any kind of negative report about adoption um, because out of fear that it will drive women to abortion or something. And that's what I mean by the sacred cow that we are trying to protect that does not really do anything. It doesn't even serve adoptive children and adoptive parents at all. This idea that um, a child can lose their mother, their first family, that you can just paste them into an adoptive family and ding, it's all better. That's not true, right? And like you said, adoptive parents tend to be more educated, more wealthy, and they actually spend statistically spend more time with their children than even the average biological um, household, right? So it really breaks all of the norms. And yet adoptees don't fare as well. They tend to struggle more often. And it's for two reasons. Number one is adoptees would say it's because of this primal wound. It's because they were forced to lose the only person they had a relationship with on the day that they were born and in essence start over. And that there's a book called The Primal Wound written in 1992. It's called The Adoptees Bibles. The adoptees say that's the adoptees Bible. It explains everything about my life, right? And then also you've got kids that say it's hard not to be genetically related to these wonderful people who raised me. And that is why over the past 50 years, we've had a massive shift in the way we do adoption in this country, mm -hmm. away from closed adoption, right? Where children have no information or contact with their first family to now 95% of adoptions are open adoptions because social workers and adoptees recognize that even if they cannot be raised by the people who gave them life, they benefit from as many connections with their biological parents and biological family as possible. So we've got these two values, right? That there is a wound. Sometimes in a broken world, you have to remove the child or the child is relinquished from their first family. But then the purpose of adoption, adoption is to seek to mend the wound. And then there's this recognition that it is a disadvantage to a children, to a child if they are separated from their first family. And then in adoption, you have the additional aspect of, we have this entire, I used to be the largest, I used to be the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world, right? And we said, the, the, we don't exist for the adults. The adults are paying us, they're not our client, right? If adoption is done well, every child that needs a loving home is going to find them, but not every adult that wants a kid is gonna get one. Mm -hmm. Adoption is an institution centered around the best interest of the child. So. Even adoption, like I'm an adoptive mom. I advocate for um, children's right to their mother and father, right? So I am. I understand that these two are not in competition with one another. But we, what we are doing with the reproductive technology world is we are actually going against everything that adoption has taught us. Yes. We are creating the primal wound for commercial purposes. We're intentionally severing a child from their genetic parents, often preferring anonymous donors so that there's no way they can have access. You know, we are not evaluating the um, qualifications of adults that are taking these unrelated children home. There's no screening, vetting, background checks, home studies, references, nothing for these people that are commissioning these custom ordered children, often, you know, through surrogacy, but sometimes just through sperm or egg donation. Um, and it is, you know, if adoption is an institution centered around the well-being of children, big fertility is a marketplace centered around the desires of adults. So people will be like, well, adoption and third-party reproduction, it's the same thing. And I'm like, from a children's rights perspective, it's the exact opposite. It's it's crazy. I mean, like when you really think about how mind-boggling it is that a random dude can just go make a bunch of kids if he has the money and then who knows what he's going to do with them. 
I mean, that's that that really is insane. There's that there's not a background check, that there's nothing that you can just literally make a baby that's not at all related to you. Like right. it's not even your bio biology. It's just like right. you happen to have a bunch of money to hire a surrogate and to do this and that. And so and you have some examples of some really horrible things yeah. that people have done. Yeah. Chapter eight, we devote completely to surrogacy <clears throat> and let the reader understand surrogacy is not about babies. Surrogacy is about on-demand designer babies shipped worldwide. That is what surrogacy is. And like we discussed, there's no screening or background checks. We already have examples of men who procure children through surrogacy specifically for the purpose of exploitation. So we've got a section in our chapter eight called Dangerous Dads, where we just kind of talk about this is the case. And those are just the dads we know about. Oftentimes, these children are taken across international borders with no tracking, no follow-up. This is not adoption. Nobody is going to the house like they did to my house to do a post-placement report to see how the child is faring. There is none of that. If you have the money to put together sperm, egg, and womb, you get the kid and you take them wherever you want to go. They disappear into the world to have God knows what done to them. And I don't, I'm not saying a majority of kids are abused. I'm just saying that it is risky for unrelated adults to procure children. And you would think that since this is the first time our species has ever made babies outside of the sexual act, government or social services would be interested in tracking who they are and where they're going. But the moneyed um, fertility industry, that would be a great inconvenience to them. So we don't have those kinds of safeguards. Yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. And it I mean, it kind of just it all ties into to like even the abortion industry as well, because it just, you know, it's like, it's just like this, the, the devaluing of human life before birth. And then because they're not placing the va the value that that needs to have before birth, like it doesn't get the proper, you know, overseeing or whatever that it needs, you know, for the, for when they're going to be alive. Um, yeah. So one of the things that you say in your book in various ways, but sort of the point of your book, really the world is desperate for more adults willing to accept hardship and sacrifice to relieve children of the burdens we've placed on them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and every single chapter kind of covers that in some way, shape, or form. And one of the things that you hit on that I have long said is the privilege of having a, a married mom and dad, specifically, you know, your biological mom and dad, because we hear a lot about that word in this country, privilege, and it's usually about white privilege. And, but when you look at the statistics, the, the biggest privilege in this country is a child that is born to married parents that stay married, that are biologically their parents. And that's just, that's just it, period. They do better in every single area by far. And then you added that the, if they have a faith component combined in there, there's literally no disparity between groups. That's right. I mean, just, just talk about that for a second. <laughs> yes. So um, that that's exactly right. That we talk in the book about how there are three staples of a child's social emotional diet. Three things that children need to feast on if they are going to be able to thrive and run the race of life. Three non-negotiables. Now there's other things out there, right, that are helpful, like an extended family and a good education and all of that and good friends and peer relationships. But if you do not have these three, your child is going to be emotionally malnourished. So what are those three? Mother's love, father's love, and stability. Okay. Without any one of those three, your child is going to be disadvantaged. 
right? And these are non, you cannot swap out or replace these, right? We spend all of chapter three talking about the distinctiveness that moms and dads bring to child development. Um, just by dint of them being different biologically and neurologically, right? The place where male and female differences demonstrate themselves the most profoundly and importantly is in the theater of the home. And the child, there's no substitute for this, right? Two men do not give a child what a man and a woman give a child. Um, and it is, there's this distinct benefit of having both halves of humanity represented in your home every single day for life. But the other thing that children need is stability. And so far, we have found no recipe for stability that can match marriage, right? Not a cohabitation union, you know, not a promise that you're making in your heart, right? Not an intent to parent the child, um, not even an adoptive home has been able to replicate the benefit of marriage, of child's married biological parents raising them together. And so... If you are missing one of these three, you're going to be malnourished. Now, we spend some time looking at um, the, um, the disparities in education in chapter one, in our section called Black Fathers Matter, right? Well, if these are the three staples of child's social emotional diet, only 13, 13% of Black children today will reach their high school graduation living only with their married biological mother and father. They are massively disadvantaged, and we see that especially in education, in the achievement gap. But we do have studies that show what happens, not when we're comparing all Black kids to all white kids and all Asian kids, but you're comparing Black kids who grew up in an intact home that was highly religious versus other demographics who grew up in an intact home that were highly religious, the, the disparities disappear. Yeah. Because this is not a racial issue. This is a human issue. Mm -hmm. Human children, whether they are black or white or Cambodian or Indian, all need the same thing. Why is it that Nigerian Americans are the most successful immigrant group in this country, including their children? Because they've got like a 4% divorce rate or like 4% out of wedlock birth rates in Nigeria. Like you're, this is a culture that deeply values marriage and family and those kids are thriving. So this has nothing to do with race. This has everything to do with, are these children feasting on the social emotional staples that all children need to thrive? The number of women attending church has declined from 48% to just 31% in the past 10 years. When I heard this data, I was moved to understand who these women were, why this was happening, and how to remind them of the importance of faith community. I began to learn how many women want better relationships with God in the church, but feel barred by the tyranny of busyness, overwhelm, or negative experience in the past. In my new book, Reason to Return, Why Women Need the Church and the Church Needs Women, I dive into the meaning of the church, why it matters for women, why they are needed to make it complete. I spoke with countless women about their experiences leaving and returning to church and discussed my own stories of hurt and overcoming within faith community. From the damaging messages of purity culture to the sweet support I felt as I stopped drinking, I realized the church body is no perfect entity, but it is a place where God is present and has a place for you within it. You can pre-order my book, Reason to Return, Why Women Need the Church and the Church Needs Women, right now on Amazon, ChristianBook.com, or Barnes and noble.com. And it's like, you know, you talk about this. It's, it's all people want to talk about is the government programs and the money and all the things that go into this when literally 
the main, this is what the focus should be marriage, incentivizing marriage, getting strong families back, like getting fathers back into the home. You say in the book that, you know, prisons are just full of fatherless sons. Like that's 75% or something like that of those of men in prison didn't grow up with a father in the home. Right. So and- 85%, right? Like, I mean, it could probably closer to 90%. This is a whole, prisons are holding tanks for fatherless boys. That's what they are. Yeah. And it is to me, and I'm sure to you as well. Like, I just look at this and I go, it's so clear. It's so clear what we need to be focusing on. And yet like the world, the culture, it's like so taboo to talk about it. It's like so taboo to say that marriage is it. And and you certainly can't say, well, that a, that a kid's not going to have, you know, all that they need growing up with uh, like a single mom or, yeah. you know, gay parents. And like you say, and and we truly believe it's not that we think people are bad parents. Like I've often heard it said that single moms are some of the best parents. Like they're mm-hmm. awesome parents, but yeah. they can't be dads and That's two moms can't be a dad and two dads can't be a mom. And, and, and like you say, it's also, it's an, it's often anonymous with these sperm donor situations or with the surrogate situations. When you see, you know, Pete Buttigieg and his husband, like sitting on the hospital bed with their babies, like as if, there weren't women involved in this situation yeah. um, as if these kids aren't one day going to wonder what they look like, which you quote in the book, 94% of people from donors situations want to know which parent they look like, which is That's like exactly right. 94%. I know we like children long to know from whom they came. Right. And I think most of us know adoptees who, even though they were raised in incredible homes, even though the parents were seeking to mend this wound and do the hard thing on their behalf, they want to know. They want to know because these, and it's not because the adoptive parents are bad. It's not because the single parents are bad. It's not because these two gay men cannot be good fathers. It's because these are human children. And these are questions human children ask. This is what human children want to know. This is why we have so much literature going back hundreds of years, right? This is why I like, I often will do this thought experiment and, you know, of like, Hey, name a book or a great work of literature or a movie that you've seen recently where a child goes on a search for their long lost mother's boyfriend. (laughs) Yeah. Give me that novel. And people are like, I haven't really seen that. And I'm like, okay, give me a movie or a novel where the kid goes on a search for their long lost missing father. And this has, this is a theme that has been present in literature since we've had literature, you know, like every Disney movie, every Disney movie, right. Every Disney movie, like you got the, you know, the, the somebody's uh, mother, the, it's usually the mother that's dead in Disney. Well, ma- yeah, there's so much mother absence, but like, you've got that. Um, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm not remembering the one where the two boys like potion up their dad because they want to see their dead father again. Right. They're on this quest to see him. I cannot believe I'm not remembering. I'm like, I don't know which one it is either. It was recent. It was like two years ago. Um, and then you've got like the American tale. Like that was the one when I was growing up or, um, you know, Littlefoot looking for his mother or something like that. Like you just have this quest, like you need to know from whom you came. Um, and why do we think that kids don't care? It's because we, we need them to not care if we're going to get what we want. Yeah. Oh man. I had something like on the tip of my head that I wanted to say, and I'm totally losing it now. That's okay. We can, it'll come back to me. Um, so, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This was it. It was the story of, I was watching a, a documentary recently and it was, it was a crazy, you maybe have heard of it, but it's a crazy documentary where some doctor in a small town had, um, 
he had basically tricked people into saying their babies had died. And then he was selling their babies on the side. And um, so all these people found out later. Do you know what I'm talking about? Was this the sperm donor doctor? No, that no, I watched okay. that one too. That's actually okay. took place in my town, which is okay. crazy. No, um, so are you talking about like a surrogate, a guy who's running a fertility company? No, that is selling so extra is, babies because that happens overseas, unfortunately. You know, in these less regulated places. Yeah. Well, this was like crazy. It was in like the fifties and sixties, and this guy, what oh, he yeah. would do is he would tell people, oh, that need that were infertile, like, hey, I can sell you a baby. And he would get people in there um, in his clinic. And somehow he would either tell them, oh, your baby, you know, was miscarried, your baby passed away, but it didn't. And then he would sell the baby. But long story short, there was one person in this, um, in the show and he, you know, they followed this guy's life. He's like 75 years old. He had never met anyone from his biological family. And they were able to track down his biological sister after all these years. And they met and they were just sobbing. And I was like sitting there going, there's something about the, you know, like this relational thing matters. Like they yeah. don't know each other. They didn't grow up together, but like, it was so important to him to meet his biological sister. Yeah. And there was, and, and I don't know what it, what it was about that that just hit me right there because I had always thought my whole life, yeah, babies adopted as a newborn, like whatever, they don't even know. Like I had never thought about the fact that that biology is still going to be, that's like still a trauma throughout their entire life. And I don't think a lot of people have. You know, what amazes me is you'll hear um, adults talk about, you know, why is it that they used a sperm donor or egg donor instead of adopting? You know, like you heard this very clearly when Dave Rubin was explaining why they decided to create two surrogate born children rather than adopt. And he was discussing it with Jordan Peterson. And he's like, there was just something really special. And Jordan Peterson's like, yeah, there is something really special. When you look at your child and you can see your father in your child's face, it's just precious and important. And, and, you know, Dave Rubin's like, yeah, like, I just really wanted to be able to see like my husband reflected in one of our children. So everybody kind of understands how special that is when the adults are talking. Mm -hmm. But suddenly when you go, well, don't you think that if biology matters to you, that it's going to matter to the child too? And the response is often, shut up, kid, just be grateful you're alive. Like yeah. you wouldn't be alive without these technologies, right? So it's just abs like, again, like this obsessive focus on what adults want and the kids have to stick it. And yet what we see from these surveys of children who have been created through egg donation or sperm donation is biology really matters to them, right? They will say, this is a huge part of who I am. I go to sleep wondering who my biological mother is. Have I passed her on the street today? Does she look like me? Does she also, you know, like spicy food like I do? Like, I can't, I don't know what I look like. I wonder if I look like her. Do her parents know that I exist? I mean, this is kind of normal internal narrative for kids created through sperm and egg donation. They care. They want to know from whom they came. And yet we can sympathize and empathize with adults who want a biological connection. And yet we've got an entire industry predicated on the fact that children won't care that they're separated from a biological parent. And I can't imagine that there's too many people out there that are, you know, were conceived this way that like would just write this off as no big deal. Like, yeah. I, have you met any that don't care? So obviously I work with the kids that do care. You yeah. Know, I follow the stories of the kids that do care. There's a few issues. Number one, uh, especially if you were conceived kind of in the earlier epochs of, of sperm donation, similar to early um, widespread adoption, uh, parents were counseled not to tell their children. 
right? Don't tell them. They don't need to know. They'll be stigmatized. Um, And so a lot of these kids, both early adoptees and children created through sperm donation, we profile some of those kids in our book. They grew up feeling like something was different or feeling Mm. like something was wrong, but they couldn't quite put their finger on it. And then when they find out that their donor conceived, there's almost relief. They're like, I knew that something wasn't right here. And maybe something wasn't right because they just couldn't put the pieces together. Like they would ask, am I adopted? Um, Sometimes they're relieved because they knew that they were not loved and cherished the way they felt like they deserved to be loved and cherished, right? That unfortunately there is a, um, we spend, we devote all of chapter two talking about the importance of biology and the parent-child relationship. Um, And there are heroic step-parents out there um, obviously we've already talked about how adoptive parents statistically are wealthier, more educated and spend more time with their kids. And yet adoptees and donor conceived kids often do not feel as connected to their unrelated parents. Um, and so a lot of children conceived through third party reproductive technologies feel that disconnect. And then finally, when they find out through that 23 and me test or whatever they go, I always knew. And you found... And you found that like when the parents get divorced, if they aren't biologically related, I believe the non-biological parent is less likely to maintain a relationship with that child just because there's something that's missing. And then um, the other thing, and I'd heard this before, but I really want to reiterate this for people is the fact that the most dangerous person to a child is an unrelated adult living in their house. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. So Biology matters. Like we, chapter one is all about why children have a right to their mother and father. We say, you know, if you are pro-life, if you believe children have a right to life, you can use those same metrics to then defend children's right to their mother and father. We talk about why nobody gets what they want. Republicans don't get small government, personal responsibility, low taxes, unless you defend children's right to their mother and father. Democrats don't get drops in homelessness, child poverty, teen suicide, um, you know, high school dropouts, teen pregnancy, you don't get anything you want unless you defend children's right to their mother and father. Nobody gets what they want unless they can put them, the children before us, the adult. But then the very next thing we tackle is why biology matters in the parent-child relationship, because this is the crux of the whole thing. And why does biology matter? For the two reasons we just mentioned, number one, those are the only two adults that grant children something they crave, and that is their biological identity. Right. And number two, if you really believe that children deserve to be safe and loved, then you believe that children should be raised by their married mother and father whenever possible, because we have not yet discovered a household arrangement that safeguards a child thriving and the ability to be loved and not neglected and not abused and not killed Mm -hmm. Uh, like a child's own biological mother and father raising them. And everybody likes to immediately jump to the exceptions. Oh, but there's abusive biological parents. Yes, there are. But go to chapter two and look at the studies. Yeah, I I started talking about this on, I don't know if you saw, I tagged you guys in a TikTok video. Did you see that? No, I should probably get on TikTok. Well, I was like, I wonder if they're on TikTok. And I was like, oh, they are on TikTok. It's not everybody. Barely, barely. Yeah. So I, I did a TikTok video about this. And of course, immediately I start getting people that are like, well, here's my situation. I'm like, yeah, like totally. Like mm-hmm. there's all kinds of situations. But like if you're going to look at the majority and you're going to base decisions on, you know, what most right. people experience, which is the smart thing to do, 
like, this is just the reality of it. And right. like, yeah, there's abusive biological parents. Yeah. There's people that grow up in this way and turn out perfectly fine and have no trauma, like whatever, but that's not generally going to be the case. Right. Um, and, oh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was, so this was interesting to me uh, when it comes to the gay marriage debate. So I have always been sort of, you know, one that just kind of stepped away from that. It was never anything that I wanted to really get involved in. Um, and I always thought like, okay, people are opposing this because for religious reasons, essentially, um, you know, which I'm a Christian, I'm, you know, traditional conservative Christian, you know, of course, you know, I believe in those things too, but I just had never wanted to, to venture into that conversation. Yeah, because so, it's brutal and they will absolutely wipe right. you off. I have, I have zero interest in like debating people on that. Yeah. So I was like, whatever, but your uh, book and the thoughts sort of in there kind of gave me a different perspective on it because it's really again, it's not about, it's not about the adults. It's about kids. So tell us, like some people probably don't understand that. So how is gay marriage about kids? Yeah, it is hundred percent about kids because marriage is about kids. Marriage has been the most child-friendly institution the world has ever known. That's because it's the only institution that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right. The two people who will statistically make sure that they are safe and loved the two people who grant them their biological identity, which stabilizes like a child's understanding of themselves. And the two people who, if you can defend that right, will grant them the perfect gender balance in the home. And if they're married, you also get stability. Okay. So there is no replica. You cannot replicate. You cannot um, invent anything else, any other household arrangement that is going to do this. So what happens when you legalize gay marriage. In essence, you say two men are the same as a man and a woman. So when it comes to their capacity to love and commit, that could be true, right? There could be two men or two women who have longer lasting relationships, are more um, committed to one another than some heterosexual couple. But when it comes to children, these are the exact opposite, right? In this household, a child is going to get both adults to whom they have a natural right in this household. They will always lose at least one adult to whom they have a natural right. They are always going to be starved of the mother love or father love that they crave. And we've got a couple dozen stories of kids talking about how difficult and damaging that was to them. In this household, they are statistically always going to have one adult that they are less connected to, that is less connected to them, less protective of them, less invested in them, less protective of them right? In this household, they're always going to be missing the biological identity that they're going to look for and they're going to crave. When we equate these two adult relationships, what we're really saying is, hey, kids, you've got to sacrifice because this adult's sexual identification or sexual feelings or romantic goals is much more important than your natural rights, your, your right to a safe environment and your biological identity and your longing to have maternal and paternal love in your home. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want to talk about like tilting the scales, since gay marriage has passed, I don't think that there's any government institution that would even say that children should have a mother and father. Not that they have a right to their, a mother and father. You won't even find government institutions that say they should have a mother and father because now to even say that, constitutes discrimination, right? We have built this marriage and family world around what adults want. Mm -hmm. And now children are simply accessories that have to fit into 
whatever adult lifestyle they're creating for themselves. Yeah. And then if we were to like dive into the hallways of, you know, therapy uh, offices and, you know, the books and all that, what are people talking about? Those are like the primary issues that everything else stems from. Um, And it's madness that you're not allowed to say that. Um, But the other thing, and even probably more likely that uh, kids are going to suffer from is the effects of divorce. And I know we don't have a lot of time, but there's just so much that you cover. But I do want to talk about that. Um, That's something that I remember hearing my entire life growing up. Um, My mom always very, uh, I, I say my mom probably made some really hard choices on our behalf because of that. And, um, you know, things are good now, but they aren't, they weren't always good. And I'm so thankful to her because I look back and I cannot imagine how different our life would have been had that happened. Like totally different. I bet I wouldn't even have, I wouldn't have a great relationship with my dad right now. Even if they got divorced now as an adult, I would be pretty devastated. Um, and so you talk about no fault divorce and how that sort of just went. It's like everything just started go downhill from there. And I, I really, I hadn't thought that much about that subject, but it is so true. And most, most, um, interestingly to me, and this is one of the things I talked about in one of my TikTok videos is that you found that kids whose parents like divorce for really le- legit reasons, like abuse or something like fared much better after the divorce than kids whose parents divorced for kind of more surface type of reasons, right? That's absolutely right. So we, you know, chapter one is all about children of rights. Chapter two, biology matters. Chapter three, gender matters. Chapter four, marriage matters. And know what we do next, divorce. Because divorce is the original redefinition of marriage. Gays and lesbians are not responsible for the abysmal state of the American family right now. It is divorce. Divorce Mm -hmm. is that. And there are too few conservatives, too few pro-family organizations that are willing to say that right? Because sometimes it affects people on our side. But as advocates for children's right and child thriving, you cannot ignore divorce. And so divorce is devastating for children, right? I, you know, I, now we can gather the stories of kids who are impacted by divorce. And a lot of them say, I figured it out. It worked it out. But divorce shackles children. It actually has implications for their physical health, their mental health, their emotional health, their academic health, and their relational health. And like you said, we used to have this system of at-fault divorce where you would divorce if somebody was at fault, right? There was a real reason. There was genuine harm. There was abuse, addiction, abandonment, something where you could say that spouse is at fault. And then you know what all of the society and the courts would do? They would favor the innocent spouse, the one trying to keep it together, the one being faithful to their vows. Now we have no-fault divorce where people can get out of their marriage easier than getting out of a cell phone contract. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's those kids of the 70% of divorces that take place in low conflict marriages. Those are the kids that are the most adversely affected because the kids of, you know, where mom and dad are having these raging fights and throwing plates across the kitchen, like you divorce and the kid goes, okay, it makes sense. It makes sense that the two people who I love the most in life are not living together anymore because that was insane. But the kids who come out of the low conflict marriages, they, it looks like everything's great, that nothing's wrong. And then all of a sudden their life has upended. Now they only see dad on the weekends, right? Now they've got this new guy in mom's life and their entire world is crumbling, right? It is so destabilizing. Divorce is an ACE, an adverse childhood experience, Mm -hmm. right? This is a traumatic event for kids. And yet in these low conflict marriages, 
where there's no seeming problem in the marriage, what the kid automatically does is go, must be me. Mm-hmm. I must be the problem. Or they learn, okay, if I ever get married or if somebody ever loves me, what I've learned from this divorce is anyone can leave me at any time for any reason and I will never see it coming. And so mm-hmm. children of divorce, especially low conflict divorce, have a much harder time forming their own stable relationships. Um, if they do get married, their marriages break up more often, but many of them simply won't commit. Many of them think marriage is too dangerous. I'll just shack up instead. I can see that. And, you know, I've been, as I've been reading your book, I've been thinking about this with my own kids because I see how sensitive they are to, um, to arguments when my husband and I are arguing, I see how, um, how like we, my daughter always does this thing, family hug. She always wants to do the four of us, a family hug. And every time we do that, I just think, imagine if we broke this up and what that would do to her. And I, I just can't imagine how it would crush my kids. And, and, you know, I, when we talk about this stuff and I've written about this in the past and shared things and people that are divorced, number one, they, they don't, they don't like it, but they also, they feel kind of attacked. And, you know, part of me is just like, if it's already done, it's already done. Like you can't change the past. And I'm not trying to make people, the point of us talking about this is not to make people feel bad about, you know, or make them feel guilty for what they've done. It's to inform people who Mm -hmm. aren't there yet. It's to give people a perspective that maybe they hadn't thought of so that maybe someone else can make a different choice that's better for their kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly never want, I'm not trying to attack people. I'm not trying to say like you were wrong or you were bad. It's just like information is power. And to get this um, stat out there, to get these stats out there, it's just really important. And I think, you know, I grew up knowing some of this stuff. Well, most people didn't. Most people didn't hear the kinds of things that I I heard. And so I that's, you know, that's why I think it's so important to talk about. But I never want anyone to feel attacked. It's just simply about making sure the information is out there because awareness is everything. Well, and we haven't talked about divorce because we don't want to offend our friends who are divorced. And we don't want to oppose gay marriage because we don't want our gay friends to feel uncomfortable. And we don't want to speak up about the harms of third-party reproduction because we're really concerned about our friend who's infertile and struggling with all of this. But you know what? All of our silence on this has turned children into, in essence, items that can be cut and pasted into any and every adult relationship Mm -hmm. and is putting them in situations of great harm. Mm -hmm. So we do need to be sensitive and we do need to be empathetic and we do need to bend emotionally for our friends who are suffering. And none of that should keep us quiet when it comes to the harms to kids. So we, even in our personal life, right? So I'd say on a meta scale, we have allowed adult desires to shape all these conversations on a micro scale, we've done the same thing, right? And especially if you consider yourself a Christian, justice for children and their well-being and their thriving has got to be number one, right? God actually, there are 39 verses in the Old Testament about giving special preference, deference, and protection to the fatherless. If you do not speak up on marriage and family issues, what you are doing is you are creating fatherlessness. You are Mm -hmm. creating motherlessness, right? You're doing the exact opposite of what we are supposed to be doing in terms of having a protective stance on behalf of children. So our empathy for the adults in our life who are struggling, and these are genuine struggles. I'm not going to minimize the struggling marriage, the person experiencing same-sex attraction, 
the infertility. These are genuine, real struggles adults are facing. None of them justifies violating children's right to their mother and father. Yeah. You know, I, I saw this the other day and it was like, you know, that quote, people say like, I would die for my kids. And someone said, no, no, your kids need you to live for them, not yeah. die for them. Right. And, and yeah. so living for them means putting them first. And, um, and sometimes that means sacrifice, obviously sometimes that means sacrificing for them. Um, okay, Katie. So, uh, what can people do? What do you, what should people do if they're hearing this message and they're like, yeah, like I, I agree. I want to be part of this. Yeah. Get on board, go to our website, scroll to the bottom, subscribe. We are going to be launching a podcast. We're actually going to create a training program because we've got so many people saying like, I want to do this. Like I'm, I, I lived it. I experienced it. I want to do more. I want to advocate. I want to defend kids. We're going to create a training program next year that you can go through. Um, and then we're going to say, how are you going to like part of that training program is you design how this is going to work in your life. Do you want to write about this? Do you want to contact your, you want to be like the North Carolina representative representative for children's rights in North Carolina, you know, do, what do you want to do? Um, so subscribe so that we can plug you in to opportunities. Um, get the book. I, the biggest thing you can do is be an expert. You should mm -hmm. know more about this than anyone else. Yes. When somebody says support for gay marriage is the same thing as support for bans on interracial marriage, it should be like chapter four, bam, I'm going to like mop the floor with you because that is such garbage arg argument, right? You need to be able to respond to all of these objections. You need to know the stats. You need to know the stories. The book is going to make you an expert. We have a free PDF study guide. Get a bunch of friends together, read it in your living room, study it together, right? Like make disciples who yeah. are children's rights defenders. Um, if you grew up in a home where you missed your mother or father through divorce or abandonment, or you've got two same-sex parents or a transgender parent, or you were created through third-party reproduction, send me your story. I'll change the world with it. Yeah. I will change the world with it. Give me your story. And I'll, we, I encourage people to write anonymously because I want the brutal honesty. And even kids of divorce who are 45, they still can't write under their own name because they're like, I am still trying to keep my stepmom happy. She would absolutely flip out if I wrote this down, you know? Mm -hmm. So I would just say like, there are lots of ways, contact me, subscribe. Um, and honestly, like get on board because it's ordinary adults like you and me, they're going to do this. This is the book guys. And I will tell you, I read it in like three days because I just was so, it's so readable. It's so well written, um, full of compelling stories, full of the compelling stats. And it's stuff that you'll remember because it's just very, like it's stuff that you haven't heard and it's just so compelling when you hear it. So I I highly recommend getting a copy and just keeping it. I was just underlining. You can just keep it around and just like flip yeah. it open when you need a reference, you know? Um, well, can yeah. you stay with me after we uh, uh, sign off? But sorry, did you want to say one more thing? No, just that it's super readable. Thanks to my co-author, but we also have a very detailed table of contents. So you can use it as a reference. If you don't want to just sit and read it all the way through, if you just want to be like, oh yeah, how is abortion related to surrogacy? Oh, there it is. So we tried to make it like a resource guide, but also, um, yeah, it'll be hard to put down. Yes. All right, Katie, thank you so much. And we will link everything um, in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thanks, Erica. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.